Today, please open in your Bibles to two chapters of Scripture. That is going to be the book of Zechariah, chapter 13. I'm still trying to continue and conclude my series in the book of Zechariah. I plan to preach one more sermon, that is next week, to to finish the book of Zechariah. So today we're going to look at Zechariah 13, but the the other passage I want to look at today, along with this, is Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9, verse 13. And we'll start here today, and I'll explain why. Let me begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray for the illumination of your word. We pray, Father, for the presence of your Holy Spirit and for clarity of understanding and how even Old Testament passages applied to the apostles and even would apply to us here in Centerville, Mississippi. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. In the latter part of the book of Zechariah, it deals, it, it communicates a lot through symbolism. And whenever you deal with symbolism, you have to deal with a lot of complications. And this is what I want to do today, is equip your mind with some symbolism before we get into the details of Zechariah chapter 13. In the book of Revelation, chapters 1 through 19, you've heard me say this a thousand times, I'll say it one more time. A lot of it deals with the time period of the apostles. And I want to give you some poetry right now to help get your mind on this time period. It goes from a time of Pentecost to a time of Holocaust. Now it rhymes. The word Holocaust means sufferings and intense fiery persecutions. You've heard the word Holocaust referring to Nazi Germany. But you can use the word Holocaust to refer to 70 AD. So what you have in the time period of the apostles is a time of immense blessing of Pentecost revival in Acts chapter 2. And for 40 years, and within that 40 years, toward the end of the 40 years, they go through the great tribulation, a great tribulation. They are persecuted, they are martyred, and then God brings a a holocaust of judgment and destruction on Jerusalem in AD 70. Now, why is this so important to keep this framework and mindset right here between Pentecost and Holocaust? It's because the passage I'm going to get to today deals with this. It goes from Pentecost to Holocaust in Zechariah chapter 13 and 14. And we're going to see that very soon. But there's some very challenging verses, especially in chapter 13 of Zechariah. And if I read it first, you'd be thinking, is that in the Bible? How can that be in the Bible? That is strange. That's horrible. That's even immoral almost, if you read it only on a surface level. So what I need to prepare your minds, and the way I'm going to do that is go through Revelation chapter 9, verses 13 through 21. And before I do that, I want to get, leave you with basically with the summary point of my sermon. The summary point of my sermon is this. Whether you find yourself in a blessing of Pentecost or in the troubles of Holocaust, your primary function is to focus on your relationship with God. There's going to be a lot of details here, a lot of symbolism, and it's really fun to do this even more in a Bible study. But when you boil all this stuff down, whatever stage of life you find yourself in, blessing or immense hardship or immense persecution, 
for whether it be Pentecost or Holocaust, focus on your relationship with God. More so than even your family relationships, your children's relationships, you focus on your relationship with God. Now, this is a little teaser as to why I'm saying this. You, uh, you'll see you later in Zechariah why it does this. But let me go and work with you now in Revelation chapter 9, verses 13 to 21. And the reason why I'm focusing on this is because this is an illustration of the church and what the church did in the years between A.D. 30 and A.D. 70, between Pentecost and Holocaust. Look at verse 13. It says, The sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God. Now, I'm going to make a commentary on every verse as we go through this. That voice that John hears is the voice of Jesus. The golden altar is where Jesus takes prayers and brings them up to God. So he hears a voice coming from this altar of incense. Another thing about this altar, this altar of incense is an altar of prayer. It's a different kind of smoke that you're going to see on this altar versus the animal smoke on the bronze altar. This smoke is going to have the colors of red and blue and yellow. This is going to symbolize the prayers of the church. The red, the blue, and the yellow is going to be on the army of the church later in this symbolism. That's why I'm saying this. It has to deal with this type of altar. Look at verse 14. Saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release, this is what Jesus tells them, Release the four angels who are, at, who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Let me pause right there. The river Euphrates was the extended border of the promised land that God promised Abraham. And what's going to happen in this chapter, in this little vision, these angels are going to let an army come into the promised land. And this army is actually the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's using symbolism to communicate it. So this army is going to be allowed to come in. This is what these angels are allowing. So in verse 15... So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. There's two words here that you need to remember before we get to Zechariah. The word kill. You look at this and you think this is really horrible and really bad, devastating. No, it's not. You're going to find out why. And also the word third. You see the word third? That word third is going to come up in Zechariah 13. And we're going to see why very soon. So here's what's going to happen. This army comes in. Verse 16 says, Now the number of the army was, was the, uh, the number of the army, the horsemen, was 200 million. I heard the number of them. In this passage of Scripture, in the, in the original text, is really two myriads of myriads. When you add that up, it is 200 million. But what it is, it's two myriads of myriads, meaning there's two witnesses. Later in chapter 11, there's two individual witnesses. Here, it's two witnesses of two armies. You add them up, and it's massive armies. And what are they riding? Horses. You remember in Zechariah? He sees the horses coming out of the temple. It symbolized the people of God. 
That's what's happening here. The church is figured here as armies going out. And what are they going to do? These 200 million of them kill people. And you're thinking, man, this is horrible. Well, just wait, just wait. So they're going out to kill how many? A third of mankind. Well, this mankind here is in the promised land. Remember that. It's not all, 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 all over the world. It's in the promised land. The man, the, they're coming to the Euphrates into the promised land to kill. Let's move on. Verse 17. I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. There's your red, your blue, and your yellow. That's the same colors that come from the incense altar. What this is symbolizing is a prayer army. Smoke that comes from the incense altar symbolizes prayer. This is an army of prayer warriors going out into the promised land. It shows the power. The red, you can say, symbolizes their preaching. The blue symbolizes their prayer because it's the blue smoke the velvet type smoke that comes from burning the incense. And the, the yellow is going to go with the brimstone, which is going to be very the warning. So here's the symbolism. Preaching, prayer, and warnings. This is going to be reflected in the, in the uh, smoke, the fire, uh, the fire, smoke, and brimstone. Look at verse 17. The heads of the horses that they rode were like the heads of lions. Out of their mouths came this, fire smoke, and brimstone. That fits with the red, the blue, and the yellow. What I'm getting at here, I don't want you to get lost in the details. I'm trying to explain very summarily that this is a picture of the warfare, the spiritual warfare of the church going forward. Look at verse 18. These three plagues, okay, the fire, the smoke, and the brimstone, these three plagues... By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. Remember that. A third is killed. By the fire and the smoke and the brimstone, which came out of their mouths, because they're preaching, they're praying, and they're warning people, okay? Verse 19. By their power, for their power is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm. This refers to excommunication. Harming people. There's a negative aspect of the gospel. If you don't repent, you are removed from the church. You see this in Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. They lie to the Holy Spirit. God kills them. This is an army of two witnesses. Later you see the two individual witnesses, the apostles and prophets, in, Acts chapter, in Revelation chapter 11, doing much of the same things here. So what's the fruit of all this? Look at verse 20. The rest of mankind who, did, who, who were not killed by these plagues, they did not repent of the works of their hands. You pause right here and you realize this. This is why you know the killing is good. If you get killed by these plagues, if you get killed by the fire and the brimstone and 
um, the preaching, what happens? You repent. If you don't get killed, that's what happens. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, they did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship the demons and the idols of gold, the silver, the bronze, the stone, and the wood. Again, there's idolatry here. The reason why you need to focus on the idolatry because in Zechariah chapter 13, there's a problem of idolatry. If you get killed by this army, you repent of your idolatry. Okay, let's move on. Neither did they see, uh, could they see, hear, nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, their sorceries, and their sexual immorality, or their thefts. So this is a description that God brings people through spiritual death. They die in Christ, spiritually speaking. They come out the other side with repentance because this army of prayer, preaching, and warning of Scripture brings people through that. And it's a third of them. You can equate this with the 144,000 in the book of Revelation that go through, the, the Jews, there's Jewish people who go through a spiritual death and they come out with repentance on the other side. Now, with this in mind, you're well equipped to go to Zechariah chapter 12 and 13. In Zechariah chapter 12, verse, verse 10, I'll start there. This has to do with the day of Pentecost and the repentance that came during Pentecost. I will pour on, on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as mourn mourns for his only son and grieves for his, only, his firstborn. In that day, there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadad, Rimmon, in the plain of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn, every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, the wise by themselves, and the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of Shimei by itself, and their wives by themselves, all the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and uncleanness. Let me pause right there. That's the day of Pentecost. That's what happens. They mourn. They're cut to the heart. And they realize they looked upon him whom they pierced. And Peter preaches the gospel to him. To them, 3,000 are saved. And they come to the fountain that is open to the house of David. And they are forgiven of their sin. This is an extended commentary on the day of Pentecost. Now we get to, the day, to today's passage in, verses, in verse 2. And like I did with in, in Revelation chapter 9, I'm going to go through this verse by verse. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and they shall no longer be remembered. I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to depart from the land. Let me pause right there. This is a good commentary on what happened during the time of Acts as well. And during the time, the days of the apostles. Because what did we just read? 
in Revelation chapter 9. The people who go through spiritual death, the people who are killed by the Word of God, they repent of their idolatry. What was the biggest idol in the time period of Jesus Christ was the temple. The temple was filled with gold and filled with all of this stuff. And it became an idol. They worshipped really the temple. They didn't worship God. This is why Jesus Christ goes into the temple and overturns the money changers, tables. And Jesus Christ, through the preaching of the word, through the death <laughs> that comes to these people, and their eyes are open, and they go through a, a death of repentance. God is cutting off the idols from the land. And he will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to depart from the land. Anytime, I'll tell you this, this is going to focus a lot on, on prophecy, false prophecy. It's not about the, the people who are predicting the future. It's about people who are declaring false doctrine. He is going to cut off the false prophets from the land. You also see this later in AD 70, right before the Holocaust of AD 70. You had a lot of false Christ. Jesus said, many are going to come in my name and be false Christ. Do not go follow them. Do not go follow them. They are preaching false doctrine. Also, you have this with the Judaizers in Galatia. We saw this in the book of Galatians. There's false teaching always. Satan is trying to deceive continually and continually. Now this is how, where you understand how to interpret the Bible. You take passages like this. You see how it applies to the time period of the apostles during their apostolic time. And then you take it to your life. And you realize that every single false preacher that's out there is affected by a demon. You and I are Americans, we're very rational. But whenever you have false teaching, whenever you have people who are going against the scripture concerning marriage, concerning your gender role and what you see in society, it is demonic. There's demons that are affecting America more and more and more in our day. And you see this in the time period of the apostles. Satan will take something and pervert it during the time period of the church, wherever stage of time period it's in. And this is how you take this scripture and apply it forward. So at the time of the apostles, we see a fulfillment of this passage where Jesus Christ is going to attack false prophets with the preaching of his witnesses, with his church. And he's going to cut off the unclean spirit that's affecting the land. And what's going to happen? There's going to be strength given to his new covenant family. And notice the strength of this new covenant family. And here's how this applies to Mother's Day. Verse 3. It shall come to pass that if anyone still prophesies, then his father and mother who begot him will say to him, You shall not live, because you have spoken lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who begot him shall thrust him through when he prophesies. You see how vulgar this is? Vulgar in a good way, in the sense that it's, wow, it shocks you. How can this be? This is picking up imagery from the Old Testament where the death penalty was applied, even to the family. And this is why it's so important to interpret passages like this with Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9 understands death 
in a good way, a death of repentance. You think about it like this. You have new covenant mom and dad. You have people who are going to address the false prophets and bring them through a death. It can be here interpreted the good death mentioned in Revelation chapter 9, where there's going to be a spiritual death, and these moms and dads, the influence of these moms, rallying with the strong father there, taking his back, saying, we're not going to allow this. We're going to honor our relationship with God before our relationship with you. That's the strength of this family, the strength of this new covenant family. And that's the type of death that they're going to go through is this, is this spiritual death bringing them to repentance. That's the power of the Holy Spirit here. Also, this applies to Jesus Christ's time period. Remember when Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies shall be those of his own household. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life and does not, and, and what, he who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. The way this applied to Jesus' time period is that you had people who had Jew, Judaism as an idol. And Jesus knew that when he pulls people away from Judaism, there's going to be friction in the house. He's going to pull people away from Judaism, convert them away from Judaism, and some of those Jews are going to try to kill the other Jews in the family. It's going to be a division within the family. There's spiritual division. They're going to go, some are going to go through a death and resurrection, spiritually speaking, and... That's the sword that Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about the sword bringing division in a Christian family. He brings division in a non-Christian family because he's putting a believer in there and the non-Christians want to kill the believers. This applies to Muslims in Muslim cultures where you have a Muslim family and then one of the Muslims converts to Christianity. In some places, in Iran and Iraq, they will try to murder and kill the believer in Christ. This is, that's why Jesus' context here, he's talking about conversion, converting to the light that's in Christ. So, what Zechariah, you combine Zechariah 13 with Revelation chapter 9, you see that there's a primary, this is why I said earlier, the summary of this sermon is, is focus on your relationship with God. We have loved ones. We love everybody we're related to. And with that relationship must come a primary emphasis on righteousness. You think about why your mother spanked you. You think about why you're such a good, a good Christian now. You think about all that you did, what your mother may have done to correct you growing up. It's because she understood, I'm going to put righteousness first ahead of this relationship, and I'm going to correct this child because I love this child. Thank God many of you had mothers and fathers just like that. That's what Zechariah is emphasizing. Look at verse 4, Zechariah 13, 4. It says, And it shall be in that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies, and will not wear a robe of coarse hair to deceive. 
What this, is this, what this means is they would act like Elijah. They would wear their coarse robe and try to pretend like a prophet. Well, they're going to be ashamed of that because they know that righteousness is involved and they will be executed if they do not, uh, if, they, if they keep doing this. Verse 5, but he will say, I'm not a prophet, I'm a farmer. And a man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. So they're going to try to hide it as much as possible. But actually, the influence of the Holy Spirit will be so much they can't hide their false prophecy. Look at verse 6. One will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? Let me do this. Look at my arms. You have one arm here, one arm here. And there's wounds that he has on his torso, on his chest. The pagans would cut themselves and beat themselves, just like the prophets of Baal did at Elijah's Mount Carmel. They were trying to make Baal cause fire to come down from heaven, so they're cutting themselves and beating themselves. That's what the false prophets would do. And they, and they would say, the parents would say, well, what is that between your arms? And then his answer would say this, the, uh, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Now, it could mean that I'm wounded in the house of my lovers, meaning... I love my idolatry, so he, he cannot hide it. They're going to find how he has been a false prophet. And they're going to deal with his false prophecy. They're going to implement righteousness over against him. That's the power of the family here, surrounded by the righteousness of God, with the influence of the Holy Spirit coming from Pentecost. That's what you see in Zechariah 13. Let's move on in verse 7. He says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd against the man who is my companion. That word companion could be, say this, the man who is my equal. Here you have a reference to the Trinity, the Father speaking about the Son. And the shepherd's going to die. And the Lord of hosts says this in verse 7, Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus Christ quotes this passage in Matthew 26, verse 31 where he is struck, he is brought down to be crucified, and the sheep there scatter. It's a prototype of what's going to happen later throughout the land. Look at verse 8. It shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. You remember in Revelation chapter 9, how many of mankind... On the promised land, did that righteous army kill? They killed one-third. They brought one-third through that death and repentance with the preaching of the gospel. This is what that's talking about. So two-thirds of the land of the Jews during the time of Jesus Christ, during the time, maybe this is a symbolic figure, maybe not exact math, but it's symbolically speaking, most of the Jews would not repent and come to Christ. Some of them would. That's the 144,000. That's the one-third that's mentioned in Revelation 9. And that's the one-third that would go through the Great Tribulation. That's the one-third that would actually be martyred and killed in Jerusalem. And then God would come in 70 AD to vindicate their blood with a devastating holocaust in AD 70. So, look at verse 9. I will bring the one-third through the fire. That one-third goes through the fire. What fire are we talking about? Well, how many fires are there? There's at least two. There's the fire of Pentecost. 
This one-third is going to go through the fire of repentance, the fire of the Holy Spirit. Also, they're going to go through the fire of persecution. The fire of the Holy Spirit enables you to go through the fire of persecution. Again, this is why we're using the entire uh, era of the apostles from 30 AD to 70 AD to explain how it applies to us. And how it applies to us is whether you're, you're in Pentecost or whether you're in the Holocaust, you focus on your relationship with God because that's how this passage ends. Look at this. Verse 9, I will bring the one-third through the fire. I will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is refined. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. This is fulfilled, initially speaking, with the church of the day of the, of the apostles. They go through the fire of Pentecost. They go through the fire of persecution. And they come out saying, the Lord is my God. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. These are the people in the Old Testament that actually left their Jewish family. They sold Jewish real estate. You think about that, a Jewish man in Jesus' day, selling Jewish real estate, bringing the proceeds to the church, in Acts chapter 2, that's not about communism. That's about getting rid of the old covenant. And they're saying bye to Judaism, bye to the idolatry of the temple. And they know it's going to be destroyed because Jesus predicted it. And they're making a new family. And anyone who prophesies against the Lord Jesus Christ, who's a false prophet, is cut off from the church. He's killed either outside of Christ, meaning he's going to suffer in AD 70, or he comes to Christ through death and resurrection. This is why, if you ever have travails in your life or blessings in your life, whatever stage you're in, focus on your relationship with God. You may have hard times with your family, with your children and grandchildren. Your primary agenda is, before I deal with my child, I'm going to focus on my relationship with God. Can you say that the Lord is my God, that Jesus is my God, then... You can approach your child with the Word of God. You can thrust him through with the Scripture. You can thrust him through with the Holy Spirit, with the fire of that Pentecost fire. So you can change his heart. All these things, but it starts with you focusing on your relationship with God, saying, the Lord is my God. In my house, the Lord is the Lord, and I am his servant. That's how strong mothers and strong fathers reckon with their children, and show true and genuine love. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. We pray, Lord, that you will strengthen us all in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we will be a part of that 200 million army of horsemen, riding out with the preaching of the word, the prayers coming from our hearts, and the power of Scripture, even the warnings. We pray, Father, that you will make us into a prayer and loving army. That you'll strengthen us, Lord, with the grace and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that we love Jesus Christ above all things. So that we are counted faithful in all places and in all relationships. Give us wisdom, Lord, to communicate love and diligence 
in all of our relationships so that you may smile upon us in our days. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.